I invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. We're going to begin a new series um, this morning on the life and theology of the Apostle Paul. And what I like to often do when I start a new series is, if you want to dig a little deeper, recommend some books. Uh, Let me recommend to you The Life and Theology of Paul by a, a gentleman named Guy Waters. He's a pastor in our denomination, also a professor. It's an excellent introduction, um, and particularly on this sermon, I'll be referencing it a lot, and and so I think it would be a good book to pick up if you want to know more about the apostle. We'll turn now to Acts 9. I'll be reading just verses 1 to 9. Hear now the word of the Lord. But Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight. And neither ate nor drank. Father, we ask now that you would send your spirit to us and illumine our hearts and minds that we may receive your truth. In Christ's name, amen. Well, the Apostle Paul, when it it comes to the Apostle Paul, it doesn't take much of an imagination to recognize that he's one of the most influential people um, in the church, in fact, in the world probably the most influential person in the church besides Jesus, of course, I would say that his writings that we have have done more to shape the church and even the history of the world than any other writer. Some of the greatest men in church history came to faith simply by reading the words of the Apostle Paul from the Scripture. St. Augustine read from Romans 13, And by the end of the sentence, he claims that all the darkness of doubting vanished away and he was converted. Uh, Maybe you've heard of Martin Luther. He's kind of important. Uh, We read in Romans, he read Romans chapter 1, verse 17, the righteous shall live by faith. He says that when he read that that verse, the truth penetrated his heart and he felt that he was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. I could go on and on. There are stories of literally whole revivals that took place because somebody opened up their home and began to read Romans with others. And so that is what we find when we come to the Apostle Paul. He is vitally important. And so the conversion of Paul on a Damascus road that we read about here in Acts 9, and you read about it as well in Acts 22 and in Acts 29, excuse me, 26, it's a watershed moment. Paul is one of the greatest minds to ever grace the Christian church. 
He was a meticulous teacher. He was a fearless preacher. He was a caring pastor. He was a determined missionary. He was a committed servant. He was unwavering and faithful in following our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In fact, he's so important, and he stands out among the rest, that his life and his theology, according to his own words, should be emulated by every believer. Paul said, I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's 1 Corinthians 4, verse 16. But see, that's not always how it used to be. The Paul that we know and, and the Paul that those in the early church first met were two different people. If you were a believing Christian at the time of Acts here in Jerusalem for the first few years after the resurrection, you would have feared Paul and not imitated him. You uh, would have been fearful of him and scared of him. In fact, even after his conversion, we read that when he attempted to join the disciples, Acts 9.26, they were all afraid of him for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Uh, He was this towering figure, and he was a man to be feared if you loved Jesus. Well, we first meet him in Acts chapter 7. There, he is referred to as Saul. That's his Jewish name. And there he presides over the stoning of St. Stephen. You see, Stephen caught Paul's attention. In Acts chapter 6, we're told that Stephen was this man full of grace and power and was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And what happened is that he was doing these works um, and preaching, and he was full of grace. He had this power. Signs and wonders were happening, and he got the attention of the religious leaders. And so what do they do? They seize him and brought him before the council and began making false accusations against him. And so what happens is he's standing before the council, and they ask Stephen, they ask him to defend himself. And that's what we find in Acts chapter 7, verses 2 to 53. It's Stephen's speech, or maybe you would say it's his sermon, and delivered explaining himself to them and defending Christ and defending the gospel. And what he does is he shows from the Old Testament Scriptures how time and time again the religious elite always rejected God's messenger. They always resisted the Holy Spirit. And so what he does in this speech is, yes, he lays out the gospel and the truth of Christ, but he also exposes the religious leaders for their rejection of Jesus. Well, as you can imagine, they didn't like that very much. Uh, They weren't happy about it. And so we read in chapter 7, look at verse 54, beginning there. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, that's Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And he also saw who? And he, Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But when they heard that, they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses, those who witnessed this stoning, they witnessed 
Peter, I mean, excuse me, Stephen's comments, they laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, Stephen cries out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. And then we read the first verse of chapter 8, and Saul approved of his execution. See, the man that we know as the Apostle Paul is the man who stood there and approved the murder of Stephen. He's the same man who we're told was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. That's what chapter 8, verse 3 says. And in chapter 9, verse 1, we are told he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. That, that phrase there, uh, breathing threats and murder, it, it's an allusion to the, the panting and the snorting of wild beasts. Paul, the great apostle, didn't only reject Christianity, he, he despised it. He was like this wild beast trying to destroy it. In fact, when he recounts his life as an unbeliever in Acts 26, he says that a raging fury obsessed me. That is the Apostle Paul before his conversion. What would cause, what were the Christians doing? What would cause such a rage against Christianity? Why were they, why was he so, so mad? And the reason it's simple, really. It's not personal. It wasn't political. It was theological. Paul was a Pharisaical Jew, and he received the best theological education of his time, and he was the best in his class. In the book of Philippians, Paul is kind of reflecting on his past life before Christ. And, and this is what Paul says about himself. If anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, uh, take a look at my credentials, he says. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He was a model Jew. And when you read his writings and you kind of see how he strings together Old Testament passages, you realize that he likely memorized the whole Old Testament. Remember, he didn't have Google to look up his verses for him. He didn't have Lagos Bible software or even a concordance in the back of a Bible. Everything that he recalls as he's writing his books it down was likely from his memory. And the one thing that would have stood out from all his study, probably the most important theological truth that would have stood out from this trained theologian, was that in the Old Testament, his understanding, to him there is no New Testament, in the Old Testament, his understanding is God is one. He was a monotheistic Jew. And Christians claim that Jesus was God. And see, Paul would have said, well, that's polytheism. That's more than one God. If Jesus is God and Jehovah of the Old Testament is God, well, then you have more than one God. 
And so those who would believe that were deceiving the people. And not only that, they claimed that this Jesus raised from the dead. And Paul denied this. He had no trust in the resurrection. They all taught that he, he didn't um, raise from the dead. And so he's not God. He didn't rise from the dead. Christianity is simply a lie. And as they're spewing these lies, they're leading the Jewish community astray. And Paul was the most upright Jew there was. And so he believed that it was damnable to believe in Christianity because it's leading them away from the truth. And he had the support of the Bible, by the way. He did. In Deuteronomy 18, we're told that a false prophet was to be put to death. It was an important passage, Deuteronomy 18. I'll preach on it um, someday soon, probably. Uh, it, it's an important passage to talk about this prophet, uh, the prophet, the prophet, and contrasting it with false prophets. And anybody who was a false prophet who taught untruths about God were to be put to death. Well, they're teaching polytheism. They're teaching that, that Jesus is God. They obviously are false prophets. And so in Paul's eyes, he had all the justification he needed. And he had the support of the Jews. And he had a reason for this raging fury he felt. If Jesus was executed on a cross as a blasphemer, which we read about in the Gospels, by the Jewish leadership... Well, his followers deserve the same. Uh, they, they teach about this Jesus. They deserve to die. And Paul was willing to take up the mantle and make sure all these Christians are dead. And so that's the Apostle Paul before he was the Apostle Paul. And now it raises a question. We know why he was so angry at Christians what is it that caused this law-abiding Jew to become one of the greatest evangelists and missionaries the church has ever known? Think about it. He goes from raging fury to loving devotion. He, he, he goes from persecuting the church to preaching Christ crucified. What would cause him to change his mind? And he gives us the answer in one of his books. He gives it in Galatians chapter 1. He says, but when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Before Paul was even born, God was preparing him to be the powerful preacher and servant of Christ that we now know. And he prepared him in so many ways, things that we may not have thought of. He, he had that top-notch education. Yes, it was in uh, the Jewish understanding of the Old Testament, but he had this education, likely memorizing the Bible. It was, it was the best possible education you could receive. He was also raised in a believing home. We read about that in Philippians. He was circumcised on the eighth day. You know, when you're listing the most important things in your life, it's likely not one of your top five that you're going to put down. But for Paul and the Jews, that was vitally important. He was a faithful Jew. He was of the people of Israel. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. And so his father was this observant Jew, and he embraced his father's faith. Great family heritage. And not only that, his father was a Roman citizen. And Paul was born a Roman citizen. You'll see how that's important when you read Acts and when you read his letters. And so this is why, by the way, that Paul had two names, Saul 
and Paul. It's not because after his conversion he was called Paul. Saul is his Hebrew name and Jewish name, and, and Paul is his Roman name. And God would use all those truths to help him be the person who would spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. And there are many other events, of course, and circumstances that God was using to prepare Paul. But know this. All those things are important. His education, his citizenship, his upbringing, his family, all that. But none of those qualified him to be a servant of Christ. The Paul that we've come to know and love, something else had to happen. And that's what we read about here. It was necessary that he be converted. Prior to his conversion, all his abilities and all those gifts that he had were used in the service of rebelling against Christ. And so what he would need is some type of radical transformation to be a servant of Christ. And so it is fitting that his conversion took place the way that it did. See, Paul doesn't just simply change his mind. He's not out there killing Christians. And he said, this is starting to get boring. There's got to be more to life. And he goes off and he contemplates and says, maybe I'll give this Jesus a try. No, that doesn't happen. He hated Jesus. You've got to remember that he hated him and he hated Christians. And so what he needed like we all do, what he needed was to be completely transformed for the very core of his being. And see, that's what happens. He is on his way to Damascus. Why is he on his way to Damascus? He's going to bring all of Christ's followers back to, to be arrested or, or to be tried or to be stoned. And all of a sudden, on his way to do this, to murder Christians, as it were, he, he is stopping his tracks by a light and a voice. He sees something and he hears something. Verse 3, suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Now we're told in Acts 22, verse 6, that it was noon when this happened. And so the brightness of the sun is not able to outshine this light. He's able to distinguish between the two. He did not confuse the light for the sun. There was this light, this supernatural light, which we read in verse 4 that he fell to the ground. And so he's going along and he sees this light. And while he lay there and he's blinded by the light that shone in the sky, Saul now hears a voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, well, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Now I want to stop. And I'm sure you can do this in your heads. Ponder for a second. Everything I just said about the Apostle Paul. Uh, or Saul as we know him in, in his Jewish context. Everything we know about him. Imagine what's going through his mind when he hears, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. He was so sure of himself. You ever meet somebody like that? They're just so sure of himself, so confident that he was doing the right thing and he was doing it for God. So certain Jesus was a fraud and still lying in the grave and so definite that God sanctioned him to arrest these Christians and even kill these followers of the way, as they're called, which is what Christians were called then. And, and, and then out of nowhere, there is a light and God speaks. 
And he hears that. He would have had an understanding from the Old Testament that God did this. And, and, and all of a sudden, God speaks, and the God who speaks is Jesus. And I'm sure at that moment, what he must have done is immediately thought of Stephen. St. Stephen, who he had just stoned to death. By the way, if you haven't figured it out, that's where we get our name for our church. And see, this is why I believe Jesus said what he said to Saul. There's an actual fuller description of what we read in Romans 9 in Acts 26. Simply, it says this in Acts 26. And when he had fallen on the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in a Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, when, it, when he says that it's hard for you to kick against the goads, see, remember, Paul was certain that he was right. But then he has this experience with Stephen. He's standing on the side. Remember, they brought the coats and laid them at his feet. They're stoning Stephen, and he hears everything and sees everything, and he witnesses Stephen when he's about to die. And he knows Stephen's about to die, and he hears about this, and he's going to be murdered by stoning. And Stephen um, says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold that sin against them. Paul heard those words of Stephen. And, and he must have been reflecting on them. James Boyce says that in the trial and martyrdom of Stephen, perhaps for the first time in his life, Saul must actually have come face to face with a true and articulate Christian. Stephen was educated too. Oh, maybe not as great as Paul, but he had a great education. He knew the Old Testament. Look at his speech. Look at his sermon in, in, in Acts 7. He, he was articulate and clear. And then in face of his brutal death by stoning, Stephen speaks his final words, claiming to see Jesus and speaking to him, and then even asks the Lord to forgive the people that are throwing rocks at him and killing him. And that must have taken Paul off guard. Um, but Paul would have been, what is going on? Maybe Stephen's lying, but why would he lie at this point? He's about to die. Why would that happen? But after that thought came into his mind and they laid the coats down, obviously he said, oh, well, and moved on. He resisted the urge to question himself at that point. He suppressed the truth. What do I mean? He was kicking against the goads. That's what Christ says. Christ was trying to goad Paul in the right direction. And Stephen's testimony was part in, uh, of that goading, but it didn't, it didn't budge him at the time. But here now... He, he comes face to face, as it were, with Jesus, that the one that Stephen saw, that he probably walked away and said, well, this guy was crazy. Um, and now he hears Jesus speak, why are you persecuting, and notice what he says there, me. Why are you persecuting me? Not them, me. And at that moment, he grasped the truth. See, why did he think that these Christians needed to die? Because they were associated with Jesus. And why does Jesus say, you're, you're, you are persecuting me because we are associated with Christ? That's the connection. And, and to persecute Christians, Jesus is saying, is to persecute me. And, and, and now he has these emotions. 
Imagine the change that's going on. You can almost hear him thinking, these Christians, Stephen, they're, they're all right. Every one of them in that moment, after, after all this, all the killing, all the stoning, all the arresting, all the work, all the education, everything, Christians are right. They're right after all. They've been right all along. Jesus is the Messiah I've been talking about, the one I've studied. Jesus is him, and we, and we rejected him, and we killed him, and yet he's alive. And he spoke to me. He is alive. He's risen from the grave. And you can imagine thinking, what have I done? What have we done? And there's nothing else left for him to do. He's on the ground, blinded by the light. And the only thing he can do is obey Lord God Jesus. Verse 7. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless hearing the voice but seeing no one. Acts 22 tells us they didn't understand the words either of what was being said. And then we read in verse 8, Saul rose from the ground, and his eyes were opened, and he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. And so there you have it. That's the Damascus road experience. Saul is now converted. But I want you to notice something that that's not all that happens here. He is also called by Christ. And we're, we're given details that we don't have in Rome, excuse me, in Acts 9 and Acts 26. You might want to turn there. I'm just going to read a few verses, picking up in verse 14. Like I said, Paul's conversion uh, historically is spelled out in Acts 9, the one we're looking at, but he also kind of reflects on it in Acts 22 and Acts 26. And here in Acts 26, we hear those words, why are you persecuting me? And we also hear it's hard for you to kick against the goads. We just explained that. And then picking up in verse 15, and I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me." See, Paul was converted by Jesus to Jesus so he could appoint him as a servant and a witness. He was going to be sent to bear Jesus' name to others, to open the eyes of both Jew and Gentile. He was going to turn them from darkness to light, turn them from the power of Satan to God. He was going to offer people forgiveness and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. See, Christ gracious transformation of Paul would lead to the gracious transformation of others by the Apostle Paul. And beloved, what we have here is a description of the saving work of Jesus in the life of everyone who believes, including you and me. See, when Christ extends his grace to you, you are brought from satanic darkness into divine light. 
When, when Christ extends his grace to you, you are rescued from Satan's dominion and brought into the kingdom of Christ. When, when he extends your grace to you, you are forgiven and you are sanctified, that is set apart. You are made heirs and co-heirs with Christ. That's what Paul experienced and it's what each of us experienced if we have received his grace and put our faith in his gospels. And so when we look at the life of Paul, and particularly his conversion, there are several lessons we learn. Several lessons. I want to look at a few of them. First, that conversion and calling are by grace alone. Paul had many extraordinary talents before he was saved. But none of them could save him. The only reason Paul was converted... The only reason any one of us are converted is because God graciously regenerates our hearts and graciously makes us a new creation. Paul didn't simply become a better person. Christ didn't say, oh, you know what? That guy's pretty sharp. He's earned it and and saved him and kind of recruited him into his own service. Paul was transformed. He was made new. Like all of us, he was a sinner. Like all of us, he was dead in his sins. And then like all of us who are believers, Christ grabbed a hold of him and gave him new life. And, and not only that, Paul didn't cooperate with God. Remember, he wasn't seeking this. This is why I labored it, going through uh, the, the historical event there. Paul was on his way to kill Christians because they believed in this fraud, Jesus. And on that road, the last thing he expected is to meet Christ and have Christ speak to him. And so who initiated it? God initiated the transformation. It was exclusively the work of the sovereign God. See, this is why now, when you're reading Paul's letters, over and over again, Paul is saying, look, you cannot save yourselves. It's got to be a work of God. It's why he says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us in Romans 5. It's why he says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 6. It's why he says, look, salvation doesn't depend upon human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. He understood that. Paul exerted a lot of energy. He had a strong will. But it's not what saved them. It was God's mercy. That's Romans 9. And why he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and not, this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. See, Paul says those type of things because it's exactly what he experienced on the Damascus road. He understood it. And so Paul's conversion teaches us, it it illustrates for us that salvation is by grace alone. That's one lesson. Second, Paul's conversion and calling teaches that those whom God saves, he puts into service. Christ didn't come, appear to Paul, save him, move on to appear to someone else, save him, and move on and move on. No, both he called Paul and he commissioned Paul. Now, of course, Paul, we understand Paul's calling and commissioning are a little different than ours. We're, in, we're not going to write books of the Bible. We're not apostles, of course. Jesus, I, I, you know, I don't know all of you personally, but it's a good chance that Jesus hasn't spoke to you verbally um, when he saved you. Um, but just like the apostle Paul, when he saved us by grace, 
he called us to bear witness to Christ. When he saved us by grace, he called us to open the eyes of others through the gospel. He, he's called us, like Paul, to, to, to bring people out of darkness into light, to turn them from the power of Satan to God, to offer them forgiveness of sins. I'm reminded John MacArthur was on a plane once, and he, he was talking to the person next to him, and the person said, oh, what do you do for a living? And he goes, oh, it's my job to introduce people on how, to forgive, how they can be forgiven by God. That was Paul's job. That's why he was converted for that purpose. So were you. We have all got a calling. And Paul would go on to teach that we all been given gifts for the calling. But the point here is clear. If you have been converted by Christ, then you have been called into service for Christ. You may not have... Uh, uh, you know, be an apostle. You may not be this great missionary around the world. You, you may not pastor a church. You may not be Bill, a Billy Graham, but in your home, in your school, in your community, you're called to serve the living Christ. That's what Paul teaches us. Well, third, Paul's conversion and calling teaches us that those whom God saves, he places them into a family and expects them to be interdependent upon each other. We see this in the final verse of our text. Let's read them. The final verse is here. Picking up in verse 10. And we read, Paul's converted now. And it says, There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight in the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. And so what's happening here? Paul's converted. He's, remember, he's brought in. He's blind. He's brought into Damascus. He's praying which is something Paul would have regularly been doing faithfully. Now he's praying. And Jesus gives him a vision in his prayer. And that vision is of this man, Ananias, coming and laying hands on him, giving him his sight back. And so Paul knows about this. And now the Lord speaks to Ananias and says, I want you to go to this Paul. And Ananias said, well, Lord, I've heard of him. I've heard about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call in your name. You know, that's great. You want me to go to him. You're my Lord, but, you know, he's going to kill me. That's what he's been sent to do. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Now, did God need Ananias? Couldn't he have done all this just verbally? No, he didn't need him. He didn't need him. But Paul was learning a lesson here. When someone becomes a Christian, even a Christian like Paul, he is immediately brought into a spiritual family 
and has countless brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Paul began to immediately associate with his new family. The situation's unique for Paul, of course. Um, and so Ananias needed some convincing here. But once convinced, what did he do? He obeyed the Lord. And look again at what he says. Remember who Paul was. Understand, even talking to Jesus himself who commanded him to do this, he's like, wait a minute, this Paul, he's going to kill us all. But when he obeys, he gets there, he says, verse 17, he laid hands on him and called him Brother Saul. Brother Saul. Days before he was his worst enemy, worst enemy, and now brother. See, when you are saved, you are immediately brought into this family of God. There's no Christian off on his own, no orphaned Christians. You have a family, countless brothers and sisters. Paul now understood this. He understood immediately the importance of this. This is why. For example, he writes, So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. That's a Romans 12. In, in Ephesians 2, he says, You are no longer strangers or aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. This is why he says in Romans again, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. It's why he says, love one another over and over again. Why he says, pray for one another, care for one another, bear one another's burdens. I could go on and on. You see, Paul understood that the church wasn't a voluntary thing. Well, you know, Jesus spoke to me. He told me I'm going to be a missionary. But you guys seem to agree with me, so I think I'll join your organization. No, it wasn't a voluntary thing. It was a family, and he was immediately brought into that family. And, and he expects every Christian, including Paul, that's the importance of this here. It's the apostle Paul. And, and, and Jesus is saying, Paul, you can't do this on your own. You have to be dependent upon the other believers. And so by way of summary, we can say that Paul's uh, conversion, his Damascus Road experience teaches us that true Christian, a true Christian is someone who's saved by grace, called into service, and brought into the church. All three are necessary. All three are true. A person who is not serving Christ at all, or not serving part of the body of Christ, or not part of the body of Christ, they cannot claim to be Converted to Christ. Oh, I can have Jesus without the church. No, you cannot. I'm not saying that someone can't be deceived and believe that, you know, be a believer and then separated from the church, but you were brought into it by Jesus Himself. You cannot serve on your own. Serving and going to church won't save you. But once you are saved, you are called to be a servant and you're called to be part of the body of Christ. That's how you know. That's one of the ways. And so let me ask. I'll, I'll close with this. Are you converted? Are you converted? You know, one more thing that the Apostle Paul's life teaches us is that there's no one here that is beyond the reach. There's no one listening that is beyond the reach of Christ. Paul says, I was the chief of sinners. He's won that. He's won the title. 
He was killing Christians, and yet Christ saved him. He was on the way to killing Christians. He wasn't on his way to church and try to clean up his life. He was on the way of killing Christians, and Christ saved them. No one is beyond the reach of Jesus. And so are you converted? A real conversion story doesn't necessarily look like Paul's, of course. It doesn't have to be this radical story as Paul's was, the chief of sinners. And it's unique for the time of salvation history that it was. He was being called to be an apostle, Uh, of course. But one thing is definitely the same. If you want to be saved, if you want to be forgiven, if you want to be lifted out of darkness into light, God must do the saving. You cannot do it yourself. Christ must apprehend you and bring you into submission to him. Christ must pour out his grace upon you and mercy upon you. He must open your spiritually blind eyes and give you life. Why? Because you're dead in your trespasses and sins. And when he does, if he has, he will call you into submission and service to himself. And not only that, he will bring you into the family. And so if you're here and, and you've been kicking against the goads, you've been resisting the message that you hear from this pulpit week in and week out, that Christ alone saves, well, come to him by grace. Ask for his mercy. Receive Christ by faith. Fall before him, even as Paul fell before him, and plead for him to grant you his forgiveness. And he will lift you up, and he will call you in the service, and he will give you the body of Christ to live now until he returns. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word, for this example of the great apostle. And yet how, how similar it is to us, how you've called us out of darkness into your light, that you've called us into service, that you've given us the church where we could depend upon one another. Help us to live that way and continually and regularly invite others to be a part of it. In Christ's name, amen.